Hello, Rudy Liquid. Hello, Marsha. <laughs> so you're a stand-up. How long have you been doing stand-up for? I've been doing stand-up for now nearly, what, 16 years? 16, 17 wow, years. That's a, so that's quite a long time. It's a very long time to go unnoticed, yeah. <laughs> well, not entirely. But before then, though, you did. You weren't always a stand-up. You ran your own business. That's right. I was a self-employed caterer. I used to um, wholesale food from Western International. I was into food. That was like the Margaret Thatcher era, where she said, get out and get on your bike and do your own thing. And I did that. And then interest rates went through the roof. And then the next thing I knew, I was unemployed and ended up cab driving. How long did you do that for? I did the cab driving for about maybe four or five years, which is basically where I started writing the comedy because I was well and truly knocked off, as you could believe, with the way that society had been treated me, considering they said to go out there and do your own thing. And um, I ended up coming down to the comedy store to sort of like cheer myself up. And I remember going to one venue and the, the comic was so bad. I told him that he was bad. And he said, if you think you can do better, then get up. And I took the mic. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. I took the mic. And I haven't sat down since. (laughs) (laughs) And how did it go at the beginning, was it? At the beginning, it was fantastic because you're unprepared. It's different when you go, right, I'm going to do a gig in a week's time because then you've got a week to think about it. Whereas if you get up on the spur of the moment, then you can be the most hilarious person on the planet. And um, it was consequence to that when I started following it through because I was a Murphy lookalike before that, but we hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Sorry. <laughs> you I can't jump? just gloss over that fact. <laughs> so you, uh, explain this to me. All right, explain that. The thing is, because I got into the food, I ended up working in different various restaurants to learn about the food trade and what have you. And it just so happens that a lot of the guys who were in food were um, unemployed actors or in the arts. And they told me that I had this resemblance to Eddie Murphy at the time. So they took a photograph of me in the kitchen which we sent to the lookalike agency. And then the next thing I knew, I was promoting like um, Beverly Hills Cops 2, Golden oh, Child. Amazing time. So, yeah, I was all over Scandinavia. I was all over Europe. And so what it. kind of things would you have to do? All I had to do was turn up at our price and all the kids would turn up. Do you know what I mean? The moment that his film was out. I remember when I was out in Norway and it was like nearly about 5,000 people came down to our price to watch this Eddie Murphy lookalike open up this store. But did they know that you were a lookalike? Did anyone think you were... Well, what they did is they sort of package you. So you've got the limousine, you've got the girls, you get me, you've got the bodyguards, yeah? And you make your entrance. So everyone's just taking photographs and what have you. Um, it wasn't until I opened my mouth... <laughs> did, the... <laughs> did the whole image sort of like burst, you get me? But um, the point but... is, is that I was meant to be a lookalike, so I did the job. But it wasn't something that... I really wanted to pursue. But did you try and like cultivate the accent? I tried everything, but um, what I learned was like with Delirious, um, was it was very much about Eddie Murphy's personal experience. The whole thing of the barbecue and his dad saying, this is my house, this is my house, this is nobody else's house but my house and his grand falling down the stairs and all that sort of thing was with reference to what Eddie experienced or what Eddie went through. So when I found myself on the stage and people would go, go on, do some of Murphy's routine, do some of Murphy's routine, you start doing the routine and they can't really buy into it. Because they know it's not him. Because they know it's not my experience. Right. You know, so what I found was that um, when I started to talk about how I felt about me not doing as well as the Eddie Murphy lookalike, that's when the titters started to come in. Because I didn't realise that I could produce humour 
at that point in time because I wasn't that sort of child when I was at school who was the class clown. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't even the class bully. I was the guy who would organise stuff, though. I'd love that. Like, we'd go around and we'd nick people's pedals. <laughs> what, of their bikes? Of their bikes. Come on, just, man, think just... about it. If you nick a pedal and then go and sit on the wall, that's a lot of fun to watch, right? <laughs> when someone comes and returns and their saddle's missing, little things like that. Do you know what I mean? Or I'd organise trips. Like, we'd go to the science museum. The funny thing is that at my school, I didn't last a term at my school. Every year I'd get suspended every year and you get suspended for stupid things like looking out the window or you get suspended for talking during the fire drill when you're um yeah that's how it was because i went to an all boys school john kelly boys i never had no idea of how to treat women or i didn't really know how to socialize with i thought you pulled their hair that's what i thought you did yeah so we'd organize little things like that where we'd go and do things you know what i mean while we were suspended and stuff like that. that was my role and i was also seen as the voice of reason within the group so for me, it wasn't a case of being a bully. It was like if somebody troubled me, then I get the bully to deal with that person. I didn't have to fend off people too tough or I didn't have to make myself heard because when I did talk, it was like for some reason, everyone kind of went... You just had natural listened. authority. Yeah, they just sort of like listened. But I didn't understand the power of that even at that time. So you didn't know that you could necessarily be funny. But when you, you must have been with cab driving, like, that's an opportunity to chat to a lot of people. No, that's to... an opportunity for people to talk to you. Oh, really? Yeah, because I think the art of conversation is listening. It's not a case of you hearing my opinions all the time. Someone gets into your cab and they start telling you about how they feel. They start telling you about what they think. They start telling you about what they've experienced. Do you know what I mean? And you start adding all that up and then relating it to your own experiences. And then once you go on stage, you've, it's almost like you've created a bond already with people without even trying to make the effort, really. You know, and I found that that's what the cabin brought to me. Okay, so you were doing that, and so the comedy started being successful. You're making a living from it. I sure am. And you travelled out. You went to go and do comedy for the troops. I did, you know. I did. In a bunch of different places. I went to Bosnia. I went to Afghanistan. I went to Iraq. I went to Kosovo. You're not pro-war, are you? I'm not. I'm anti-war. I'm totally anti-war, but um, I love money. No, it was a case of listening to comedians getting up on stage and talking about these various topics and um, kind of feeling that it was quite superficial, some of the things that they had to say. So I always like to go by um, personal experience. I mean, going out to um, Sarajevo, when Blair suggested that we go out there and we kind of help these people, and you go, well, what are we going out there for? And then when you go out there and you're looking at the buildings, do you know what I mean? And like every building looks as though it's got um, woodworm and these are actually bullets that you're seeing, you know, you start to hear stories about the way in which the women were treated, the way they were raped, you know, the genocide that took place out there and, and the bombs that are littering the areas as it currently stands, you know what I mean? You kind of think to yourself, well, whoa, this is quite heavy. And not only that, but I think these boys need cheering up. Do you know what I mean? So, hey, bring on the comedy. But what I found quite fascinating was that my comedy is not one of, like, slapstick it's not one of knock knock here's a quick gag it's very observational and very social so it was interesting talking about anti-war issues to the troops did you though yes, when I you did. Were, and yes, how I did that go down and their response was yes rudy we know and that's that's exactly how we feel we are questioning why we are here but at the same time we have a job to do do you know what i mean and then that's where my respect comes for them and their respect comes for me because it's not like i'm saying isn't this a brilliant job that you're doing lads and yeah let's go out and let's kill them let's go out and get them you know we're having this real conversation and that then empowered me to come back home and talk my own personal truths about the moral decay 
that I feel that we in England are going through. And, and we're kind of like seeing it now to a certain extent when you start looking at the way in which the MPs are treating us, the way in which the, um, the NHS is underfunded, the way in, in which the children feel as though they've really got nothing to live for, they've really got nothing to go for, right? And as a man of like 45 years of age, I can then look further back and realise when there was all this talk about us like having a classless society and everybody being equal and what have you, and then realising that in actual fact what was happening was all the classrooms were closing down, you know? And then you start to relate this to the way in which people look upon the whole immigration issue and the fact that you've got immigrants coming in and taking the jobs and what have you, but not realising at the same time that in truth it's just that we've got working class people who are underskilled, which means that they're undertrained. So it's not really an immigration issue that we're talking about here. We're talking about an educational one. So my comedy sort of like deals with those type of issues as opposed to your contemporary like, okay, what's going on with Bobby Brown today? But mind you though, if I'm in the clubs, that's what I would do. If there's a hen night in front of me, then that's what I would do. So I see myself less as a comedian and more of a chameleon, you know? Adapting. So I'm adapting to every environment that I'm in. What I did find quite interesting was when I did my first Edinburgh um, preview, I just got off the Ocean Village, having just travelled around the Caribbean. 2,000 people. So on average, every night I was performing to maybe 400 people. This is Ocean Village, the cruise ship? This is Ocean Village, the British ship, yeah, that travels around the Caribbean. And I got back into Brighton to do my first Edinburgh preview and there were six people there. How much of a come down is that? I was like, I'm an open spot again. I can't believe that I've gone from being this headline act to this open spot. But um, what it did was it kind of shocked me into really thinking about what I'm saying and really being um, appreciative in terms of the audience who actually come out to see you. Because it's easy to look out at 400 people and say something and know that percentage-wise, what you're saying is on your side because 60% of them might go with it, 40% might not. But those 60% without way, the 40%. When you've got six people in front of you, it's a totally different ball game because that sixty percent now becomes like just four people going yeah all right and the other two people going mm. and it's every time you look into an audience and you see somebody who isn't laughing that's the person that you go for that is the person that you go for but now it's not a case of you can just go for that person because now it's like you're targeting that person so now they're feeling uneasy about the fact that you're actually talking to them and making them the point of what you're saying whereas if you're in front of like four hundred people it's like oh yeah it's him he's talking about ah. And it just gets brushed to the side. So I'm kind of looking forward to this in a way. Is it the first time you've been to Edinburgh? This will be the second time. Right. I went up there in 2006 thinking that I was going to um, change the whole world and realising that Edinburgh was saying, I don't think so, Mr. Rudy Liquid. <laughs> but you've been doing comedy a long time to have only been once before. Yeah, because I didn't really enjoy Edinburgh for what it was. Because Edinburgh is an art festival. I went up there with the intention of being a very funny person, only to be questioned, what's your point? My point is, isn't this funny? No. They want a statement. Yeah, we want to know what is your point. So that's why I decided to do a show called Food for Thought, which is a look at um, nationality versus cultural identity. So in other words, your nationality does not determine your cultural identity. If I go in front of a black audience and I say to them, are there any West Indians in the room? They'll all go mad. If I say to them, are there any Jamaican people in the room? A good percentage of them will go mad. And then I'll go, are there any Jamaicans with a Jamaican passport? And they will go, no. (laughs) So all of a sudden now, they are now British. But if the West Indies are playing England in a cricket match, who would they support? 
So there's this thing that's constantly going on between one minute being proud to be British, next minute kind of like saying no. But what I've discovered basically is that everybody really appreciates the culture of Britain. It's our culture that they like. It's our nationality is what they have problems with. I mean, you can turn around and say Cecil Rose was a great man. But an African would never say that because of what he did when he went into their land. Basically, what he did is he came into their house, moved them into the smallest part of the building and then started charging them rent. Right now, no one's going to appreciate that. But the booty or the benefits of what he did came to Britain, which is what made Great Britain. So it's all those kind of topics I'm going to be touching on and opening up and basically having a look at to the point where the question then becomes, what is British? Well, talking of being British, but being proud of your cultural identity, you got named one of the top 100 great black British... Achievers. Achievers. Yeah. That was... 2004. The reason for that was because I set up a comedy school alongside a guy by the name of Keith Palmer. And the reason why we set up the school was because you had comedy schools like Jackson's Lane. But Jackson's Lane was predominantly focused on white middle-class comedy. So when I came in and I started talking about planting and dashing and the black British lifestyle, they were like, well, we don't really understand what you're talking about and I don't think people are going to get it. And I'm thinking, hold on a minute, you're listening to our records, you're wearing the same clothes, we're all moving the same way, everyone's smoking and sitting down and having a drink together. What do you mean they're not going to get it? Well, what they say was basically this is a middle-class thing. Comedy is a middle-class... And I'm thinking, this is rubbish, man. This is absolutely rubbish that you're telling me. So once I got out onto the circuit and I started performing and I began to realise that people were buying into my world, it then said to me, OK, so what we don't have is we don't really have much of a presence when it comes to mainstream TV. And the thing is, why is this? It seems as though it's because we haven't got enough comedians coming through to be picked for the opportunities that are available out there. So the only way that this could be done is if we were to set up a school, which is what I did with Keith Palmer. So by setting up the school now, what it allowed us to do was to get all these youngsters who wanted to come in and learn comedy and teach them that they're communicating to an audience. You're not communicating to your friends at school. Do you know what I mean? You're not communicating to the man on the street corner that you would stand up with and just have a little chat with. So you're going to need different types of communication skills. Not only are you going to need the different types of communication skills, but you're also going to require the techniques that are used by comedians to invoke laughter. So when I start talking about similes, metaphors, um, the list of three, sarcasm, it's all well and good to just mention these things, but they needed to understand what these things were in order to incorporate them into their routines. Because everyone would say, oh, yeah, you just need a setup and a punchline. Yeah. I hear you, but that's if you're reading out of a joke book, you know, because comedy is not like that anymore. Comedy is more about your personality. It's more about where you're coming from. It's more like, can I identify with you? It's more like, can I question? So it was a case of trying to get that across, but also to try and help the industry to grow in terms of black comedy. So what has come out of that now is that we've got the likes of Kojo, we've got the likes of Special P, Mr Jamaica, Eddie Caddy. These are guys who are filling out theatres now simply because we developed the school and more and more youths are coming through. We've got Jason Lewis on MTV now. This all came about through the school, through them seeing that, oh, it is possible to get up and talk about myself. No one's going to turn around and say to myself, oh, you mustn't talk about being black or you mustn't talk about, not so much black, but you mustn't talk about being Nigerian or you mustn't talk about being Ghanaian because these are the things that it all adds to the pot because they're all different ingredients. Whereas before, I can say on the black circuit, it was predominantly about being Jamaican. Everything was being about being Jamaican. Now, I'm, my parents are South American which makes them Guyanese, yeah? But I'm black British and I'm born here. So 
for me, I was getting fed up with hearing about the Jamaican things. So I'd get up on stage and go, I've got a bit of Jamaican blood on a machete. And everyone's like, whoa! Because I'm just looking to put them in their place. It doesn't have to all be about you lot. So the Ghanaians started coming out. There's a lot more African comedians out there with stuff to say. And what I found with the alternative circuit, which is now in the mainstream, you might as well say, was that audiences like difference. They're interested because it's an intellectual thing on another level. It's like when you reach 25 and you've listened to all the drum and bass, you've gone to all the clubs where you just stand up there and you're just looking for women. After a while, you want to be entertained. And one of the first ports of call, especially with 25 and up, is they seem to end up in the comedy clubs. So when they end up in the comedy clubs now, it's nice to hear a little bit something different instead of just what we were used to was having someone middle class standing up, telling us about what's going on. Now with multicultural Britain, we've got so much more variety and I just felt the school was able to bring this to the circuit. It was able to introduce all these um, comics to the circuit. It was able for them to turn around and say, you know what, I can go down to the King's Head in Crouch End, even though it is predominantly white and middle class, and I can perform to these people, and they will either warm to what I'm saying, they will disagree, or they will laugh. And um, for me, that's a good thing. It's better than me just sitting back and going, boy, I'm bitter, you know, I should be on TV, you know. I don't know why on TV, you know. I'm good, you know. I was on with Mark Thomas. I was on with Joe Brand. I was on with Eddie Izzard, you know. I've been with all of them. They all know me. I know them. But as opposed to sort of like saying, right, you know, I'm hard done. I just said to myself, I'd rather be part of the solution than part of the problem. But then also with the comedy school, you've taken it a step further. Yeah, in we terms went of- further because I looked at it this way, right? In the UK, we represent something like 2.5% of the population, right? But yet for we represent 15% of those who are in prison. Why is this? That was my question. Why are they going back? That was another question. I remember sitting down and watching EastEnders and um, what was that guy? Uh, Dirty Den. Dirty Den came out of prison, landed up on TV, made better of himself. So I said to myself, you know what? Comedy can also help here. So let's take comedy into the prisons. Let's introduce these kids to the arts. Because the one thing that the arts doesn't do is it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't look at your CV and go, oh, I see you've done six months. Well, seeing if you've done six months, I don't think we want you here. The arts ain't like that. The arts is like, do you have talent? Are you good? Okay, let's run with it. So it was my kind of way, once again, of trying to say, be part of the solution. Don't be part of the problem. Let's go into the prisons. Let's talk to these youths, right? I, I kind of, it was a struggle because it was frightening listening to the doors closing behind you. I remember working with a class and like we'd just finished and I went, all right, guys, all right, I'll see you, bye. And I went, and the door wasn't open. And they're looking at me like, you want to get away, innit? You want to get away. And I was like, no, lads, it's not that I want to get away, right? It's just that the door, you know what I mean? It's just, the, it's those little things when you realise your freedom, it just ain't there. It just ain't there. And so you're doing these courses with people in prisons and presumably it's not just about showing them that they can do comedy because it's... No, what it is, the the, the thing behind it is they end up getting key skills, key communication skills in writing, verbally. They get accredited for it as well, which to me is a plus because you don't want them just coming out feeling that they're just failures in society and there's no place for them to go, which is why we were very thrown when we got the knee-jerk reaction from the newspapers and what have you, when they found out that um, one of the guys on the course was suspected of being a terrorist. Now, I'd much rather know that there's a guy standing on stage telling a bunch of jokes about how he feels about the way that society's treating us than to have him walk out there with a gun and want to start shooting everybody. 
I understand that people are turning around and saying, well, is this really the right way we should be spending our money? But then if you're not going to hang these people, if you're not going to shoot them, then you've got to think about what you're going to do with them when they come out. So we're trying to do something positive. We've been closed down. We, I mean, that's not going to happen. We can't go back into the prisons now because of all the hoo-ha that has been made up over that. Really? Um, yeah, which personally I think that's quite sad. But then once again, it's really more about the politics than it is about social welfare for society as a whole. And that's how I look at that because it was a knee-jerk reaction by Jack Straw to just go, oh my God, oh my God, is that how we're spending the money? I didn't know we were spending our money like that. I think, you know, let's close it down. Boom. So was it Jack Straw's decision? It was Jack he Straw's basically, decision. wow. Yeah, it was his decision. The thing is that we've been going for like three or four years of doing that up and down in the prison we've even got comedians who are on the circuit now that you know whose names I'm not going to mention but they're out on the circuit now have you have you had success stories we've had success stories with prisoners who are in there you know we've worked with lifers who are putting on plays and stuff like that in the prisons now so I think comedy is such a beautiful tool because you can talk truth with sugar with comedy. Sugar makes the medicine go down so much more sweeter. You can be so much more honest about things. It also enables them to sort of like come out of themselves. There were certain issues we had to deal with, like, because I never came across them at all. Like, we'd be talking about stuff like hecklers. How do you do with hecklers? Well, you can either repeat what they say or you can look at them. You can start to ridicule them. You can really take the piss out of them. You know what I mean? And then when I go back to myself, then what? Oh, I forgot about that. Yes, yes, yes. I see, I see. You've got to... It's a different environment now because normally when we deal with a heckler as a comic, you go home, you go away. I may never see you again. It doesn't really matter. But with these guys, they're seeing them every day. So what we had to do now was we had to make sure that the way they were delivering their comedy and the topics that they touched would give them kudos. So it gave them kudos within the prisons. So their stature would now start to change. So we had to really think about it. It wasn't just a case of going, oh, well, here's an opportunity. We can go into prisons. There's a massive market. It was like, one, there's all these youths. What are we doing with them? How are we helping them? Two, it became a case of, well, how are they going to socialise while they're in prison? Can we help them with this? And then three, it was like, yeah, something for them to look forward to when they come out. That's wicked that you've had success stories. That's amazing. Yeah. And we're, we're very, I'm very pleased with it. I'm proud of it. But it's not something that you boast about. It's, it's something that you just get on and do. That's how I look at it. And it's, I don't know of any other thing that I can do that can give me that kind of um, self-satisfaction. So your Edinburgh show is called Food for Thought. Yeah, it's uh, running from the 5th of August right to the end of the festival at the Pleasance and I'm at the Pleasance in the attic so if you're going to come down to the attic put on a t-shirt man because the weather's so bad I don't know whether to buy a duffel coat and a convertible car all at the same time because you never know what the weather's going to be like and I don't want no one minging in there okay so make sure you bring deodorant maybe you should hand it out at the door <laughs> I think that would be a good idea isn't it? hand out some deodorant hey yeah yeah you're smelling a little bit high you been to the gym today you been to the gym they're not allowed in alright and your <laughs> website for all of this stuff is liquid.co.uk or they can go to ha ha he he dot com or they can look it up at the pleasant or just google rudy liquid rudy thanks so much for coming on the show thanks so much for listening if you like that you'll probably love the book that i put together with deborah francis white called off the mic the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy so asking them things like what's your writing process how do you find your voice what do you think about touring how do you deal with hecklers we interviewed 42 stand-ups including eddie izzard sarah millican phil jupiter Stuart lee mark Marin. it's out now on bloomsbury publishing if you want to find out more go to yes yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic